He's amused Cam Newton. He's been insulted by Charles Barkley. When some idiot in the press asked him, if you know what you know now, would you have scheduled this game? He's interviewed Matthew McConaughey. I do say go Tarion. And he's taken on Big Blue Nation. I see, he's just completely taken the wind out of my sails. <laughs> it's time for The Drive with Josh Graham. Once again, it is time for The Drive without Josh Graham. Josh is on his honeymoon. I am the latest in the parade of imposters. My name is Dave Gorin, executive director of the National Sports Media Association, sideline reporter for Wake Forest football. Had my pals Stan Cotton and Larry Sorensen in here yesterday filling in quite the show. Looking forward to getting back with those guys in just a couple months. Will Dalton behind the glass. Will, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dave. It's a pleasure as always. You're, you're not bored to death yet without Josh, are you? No. Uh, if anything, right. I have more to do. i got more slack to pick up. Exactly. That's he just exactly throws me right. everything. And Carmen's behind the glass there learning the board in the studio. So I uh, hope we don't bore you guys to death over the next uh, couple hours. I think Josh really asked me to do today's show because he knew it was Friday of Fourth of July weekend, and no one would be listening. <laughs> Come on, Dave! You got to give some more credit than that. I'm, I'm kidding. Great, great lineup of guests oh, today. Yeah. Uh, bottom of the hour, we'll have Jane Kennedy. She just won our Rune Arledge Award for innovation. She was here in Winston Salem uh, over the weekend and Monday night. A great story. The first person, first woman of color on a network television sports show back with the NFL today with Brent Musburger and Irv Cross and Jimmy the Greek back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, And she went from here to D.C. where she's visiting with her daughter. Four o'clock, we'll have Wes Durham. His Packer and Durham show on the ACC Network had their last show this morning. So we'll talk about that with Wes as well as what's going on in college sports with realigning and expanding Chris Geis, a local attorney who started a police athletic league T-ball league. We'll talk to him at 4.30, 5 o'clock. Our old pal Bob Ryan, NSMA Hall of Famer, has a new book out. We'll talk uh, about that with Bob. And then bottom of the 5 o'clock hour, Tony Siracusa, who just moved to this area about uh, eight months or so ago. He uh, runs the college football operations for lastwordonsports.com. And he came from L.A., so he's very much plugged in. I think he's a UCLA alum, so he's very much plugged into the UCLA-USC tandem. And we'll talk to him about that. And we'll start our discussion about what is going on in college sports with our first guest. His name is Fred Cowgill. Fred was here in town over the weekend and Monday night to receive the Kentucky Sportscaster of the Year Award. He actually shared that with Kendrick Haskins and Fred's a longtime friend, works at WLKY-TV in Louisville. Fred, good afternoon. How are you, my friend? Hello, my friend. Fantastic. Better now than I'm talking to you. How about you? <laughs> I'm great. So what do you make of this news that broke in the last 24 hours about uh, Southern Cal, UCLA, coming to the Big Ten, specifically how it might affect the ACC? That's an ex- excellent question. I think that's the you know, elephant in the room, the million-dollar question. I really believe this will – eventually change the landscape of sports forever. Uh, and I think the ACC is totally in the line of fire, including Louisville. I mean, I, I get the sense based on what I've read and what I've seen and people I've talked to that this isn't over yet, that the Big Ten has other interests in other schools, including but not limited to Stanford, maybe Oregon, maybe Washington, which might fit their 
their blueprint and their their mission statement. It would also kind of fit with having a couple of schools on the West Coast now in terms of scheduling. And, you know, that might mean the SEC goes after a Florida State, maybe a Clemson, um, maybe a Miami. I mean, which obviously would then begin to gut the ACC. Um, I really worry for the the Big 12 and the ACC um, and their future or the lack of it. I mean, I just think that, you know, there'll be two super leagues and then everybody else can be scrambling for that third league. And, and I mean, there could be a possibility a Louisville or a Wake Forest as, as a, such a small school uh, in regards to student population, uh, they could get left by the wayside. I agree with you. And I think that uh, if, if I were a wagering man and I am, that that might be the bet I would play that there I could virtually guarantee you there will be schools left behind. The question is whom. I, I wonder if ones that are already in are probably okay. There's been already speculation like a Vanderbilt would be in trouble and Indiana would be in trouble. I don't really believe that uh, because of the long tenure that these schools have with their respective leagues. But in terms of leagues getting gutted and what's left behind, uh, I do worry. So, you know, Wake with having the small population uh, student-wise, a Louisville, which doesn't really, you know, have the same moxie maybe. That especially we're talking a football-driven decision. And Louisville certainly had modern-day success in football, almost played for the national championship in 2006. You and I were at the Orange Bowl uh, that year and, and yep. saw Louisville play against Wake Forest. Um, uh, obviously won a Sugar Bowl as well under Charlie Strong. But, you know, nowhere near the tradition that some of these other schools have. And really, would there be a value added for uh, the either league, Big Ten probably not, SEC maybe, but Kentucky probably would not really want them to be in. So, I mean, Louisville could be out. There could be, and I think will be, a number of schools left out. What happens to Kansas, which has a very weak football program, obviously, you know, very strong basketball, Louisville, very strong basketball, although it's been under all sorts of NCAA, you know, beatings recently and is in the middle of one now which has gone on seemingly since the dawn of man i think it's year <laughs> five now right yes uh, and, and i think one of the big questions everybody asks is what about travel not just for football but for for all of the non-revenue sports or the olympic sports as as they prefer it to be called you know what does this mean for that and the cost of travel what does it mean for time spent away from the classroom away from campus with these long trips, uh, I went on uh, Wake Forest played at Stanford back in 2010, I believe it was. And, you know, we went out there on Thursday with the team. So two days early. So the kids are giving up Thursday and Friday out of class, did the same thing the next week at Florida State just to you know, kind of even that that trip out. And, you know, we left. At, I think we were wheels up out of San Francisco. It was a night game at two o'clock in the morning Pacific time and landed in Greensboro at 10 o'clock Sunday morning, Eastern time. And so that's yeah. pretty much blowing your, you know, your, your student-athlete Sunday as well. You know, frankly, I don't think they're thinking about that. I think this is a football decision. I think schools, are, uh, programs are scared that they're still going to have a seat at the table for the college football playoff. Uh, and, you know, that brings in a lot of different layers to it. Um, I mean, if this were a decision driven by the welfare of the student-athlete, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, you've got Rutgers going out to play UCLA. I mean, how does – non-revenue sports and, and Olympic sports, how does that work? I don't – but, you know, the bottom line is it's about money. Uh, you know, it's 
I think last year the SEC and the Big Ten, because of their respective powerful TV networks, each shared roughly round numbers, ballpark $55 million to each school. And just as a frame of reference, that's over half of Louisville's budget for the next year. I mean, that's, that's jaw-dropping. And as a comparison, UCLA and USC, I think, each got round numbers about $20 million from the Pac-12, which obviously doesn't have the same engine as the Big Ten Network and the SEC Network. So, you know, that's why Texas and Oklahoma went. I mean, it's, you know, they weren't making that kind of money, and they also saw a future which, you know, when the music stops, in, in a worst-case scenario, they might not have the seat they wanted. They'd have a seat, but it probably wouldn't be the seat they wanted. So why not go to you know, what is widely considered you know, the most powerful league right now in the SEC, especially from a football standpoint. And, and, you know, I still wanted to argue this case for a while, but now I've sort of given up on it. It is a football-driven thing, and there's way more money in it. I mean, Louisville's one of the most lucrative uh, programs for basketball. Duke, one of the most lucrative programs for basketball. They each pull in, you know, in, in their heyday, round numbers $30 million a year. But we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of thing that, you know, the holy grail for these schools. And so the student athlete, frankly, is just going to have to adjust. So, and I, I, this hits me on a lot of levels, Dave, because I mean, I've had, you know, you've got kids in school, I've had kids in school, still have one at Louisville. And to see the kind of money it's costing to have kids in school and to see what's going on with this and the kind of money being thrown around for coaches and all that is, is somewhat distasteful. And knowing that a lot of professors, and of course you're, an adjunct professor at Wake Forest, and I, I have a master's degree. I'd hope to maybe teach after I retire, step aside, and I still may do that. But there's such little money in teaching. Uh, there are professors at Louisville that haven't gotten a raise in years, you know, making 75, 80 grand, whatever. Nice money, don't get me wrong, but not, I mean, as lucrative as you'd like to believe professors should be getting, you know, on a major level. So it, um, I have a bit of a distaste about it. Now, I went to a, a big time school, I went to Tennessee, still you know, an alum and still contribute and obviously a big fan of the Vols and all that, but I won't fib. It's it's hard to continue to have the same passion for this when I see where all this is going. Agreed. And I'm, I'm somebody who tries to look at it realistically. You know, when we say follow the money, it's all about money. Well, everything's about money. It costs us money to buy things. It costs money to, to have professors at colleges. It costs money for books for students. Uh, where I draw, the, I like to draw the line is it's money versus just flat out greed, and, and, and I don't really know where we draw that line anymore. That may be, you know, one of the best questions out of all of this, and it really does bother me a lot because schools should not be in the business of being a minor league for the NFL. And now, of course, it brings up, you know, name, image, and likeness and kids cashing a big ticket on that. And frankly, it's open season and recruiting is, you know, what used to be a violation is no longer. And, you know, kids are going places and getting money. That's just crazy just to be in college. And I'm all about the student athlete and getting what they deserve and all that. But what bothers me the most being a fan of teaching and a fan of education and all that, which is why I got a master's years ago is colleges weren't supposed to be, you know, invented so that they'd be minor leagues for the NFL and Major League Baseball and whatever. But to show you just how far it's come now, look what's happened to the minor leagues in baseball. You know, Major League Baseball bought everything and basically gutted a lot of the minor leagues because, at least in part, more and more we're seeing the quality coming out of college baseball. They don't need them anymore as much. And, of course, it was very expensive, and they're having to spend more 
uh, on the minor leagues, at least individually, team-wise, because frankly, they were really, you know, kind of understaffed, or under-budgeted a lot of these teams and what they were doing to these kids. So, um, but to that end, it goes back to the simple premise that as much as I love my alma mater and you love yours, and obviously you've covered Wake Forest a long time and have an affection for it, it um, to see what's happened in athletics, it's almost what's the old cliche about the you know the cart pulling the horse kind of thing is something's wrong with this picture yes and, and you know for me you talked about a master's degree and having one and um you know i go back to and i'm not really sure where i'm going with this but it's you know how did this all start well you know there's competition there is a free market society um you know, if your team does badly, you want a coach who's better. So you have to pay that coach more. Well, now you need more money from the boosters. And you need, by the way, you need facilities to keep up with the other teams in your conference. And so now you're going to need more money from the boosters. And now let's throw in NIL and the transfer portal. And you know, it just seems like we have complete and utter chaos right now. You know, a lot of the college coaches – Football and basketball were saying we need some kind of guardrails. Just talking about the the NIL and the transfer portal, uh, and it seems like, I mean, the not only have we blown through the guardrails, but we we have been tumbling down the mountain. Right. It's like the Wild West. I mean, it's literally almost anything goes at this point, and finger pointing is going on and all of that. But it, you know, there there's no referee in this game, and. You know, people want to point figures at the NCAA, and certainly I've had my own issues with it over the last, you know, four decades plus of my career. But I almost think that this model was broken to begin with. It was just a matter of time. It's almost like the intersection that doesn't have a traffic light until there are enough accidents where they put one up. And we're seeing, you know, literally a train wreck going on right now. And it's just so disheartening in so many ways. I almost, and I, this is, Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I actually thought about the club models of Europe. That may, maybe we're getting this all wrong, or Canada with hockey, where the kid's a 16-year-old. He, you know, he doesn't finish school, or if he does, he does it with his junior team. And you know, in Europe, they have a, a basketball club, and it goes that direction. Soccer is club-driven, so the schools are not under the pressure of all of this. But the the problem at the end of the day, as you touched on, is competition and. When you've got an Alabama, which has become so successful, and the business model, I think, uh, for a lot of schools, it should be, to see what it has done. This is a school, as you well know, that you know four or five decades ago had George Wallace as the governor of the state, had one of the worst images in the United States for all he stood for. And in, in a period of the last quarter century has gone from that end to being one of the most respected universities in the United States. Kids st- virtually standing in line to go where – and part of the reason why was they changed their mission. They, they became a national university. They went out and recruited kids from out of state and offered in-state tuition for out-of-state kids if they had good grades. And then the football team became part of the engine for that success, and suddenly it was cool to go there. And it kills me because I'm at a, you know another SEC school and the SEC as an alum, and I've talked to the chancellor of Tennessee about it, and the, its business model is different because the state of Tennessee has a lottery and the lottery fuels a lot of the in-state kids going uh, for a dramatically reduced price. And so their focus is on in-state. I'm like, we need to be diverse. We need to expand. Look what Alabama has done. And, you know, people wonder, why are you spending all so much money on sports? Because Alabama did it, and suddenly the school is more successful than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
We need to take a break. Can you stick around for a few more minutes on the other side? Absolutely. All Absolutely. right. Fred Cowgill, WLKY in Louisville, your Kentucky Co-Sportscaster of the Year, joining us here on The Drive without Josh Graham. Dave Gorin filling in. We'll be back right after this. Now comes the moment you have all been waiting for. All right, whenever you're ready. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin in for a, an easy listening Josh Graham, who's on his honeymoon. honeymoon. Will, is he uh, still in Asheville? Do we know how long he was going to be there? I think he was only going to stay in Asheville a couple of days. I think he's headed to the Caribbean. I forget uh, where specifically. Tur- Turks and Caicos. Turks think, and Caicos. Right? Both right. Turks and Caicos. That's right. Not one or the other. That's right. <laughs> Will Dalton producing for us this afternoon. Dave Gorin sitting in for Josh. And we're joined by Fred Cowgill, one of our two Kentucky Sportscasters of the Year, who was in town over the weekend through Monday. And we were talking a little bit about uh, college expansion, the chaos that it is. And, Fred, we they just announced the 355 new scheduling model for football, and all of a sudden no one remembers that. Point taken. And uh, so true. Um, it's hard not to be distracted by this, especially, I mean, in the ACC, where there's already reports that, there have been feelers out to, to break the promise that all of these schools have made to stick together through, I think it's 2035 or whatever, um, which seems a bit disingenuous. <laughs> I, I thought college was supposed to reach for something higher. I, I, maybe I, I'm a bit Pollyanna about it, but I've always admired colleges. I mean, it's from the time I was a kid and wanted to go to college and wanted to play college athletics. Uh, I sort of put that whole business model on a pedestal and you know sometimes you'd rather not know the the backstory and the, the, the reality of it but you know it's the reality is i mean here are schools that have made promises to, to stick together for a long time and mm-hmm. now seeing what they're seeing they may be panicking that they're going to be trapped and i'd like to believe there are other answers to that i mean maybe they should stick together and then try to get the remnants of the pac-12 or you know, become a the coast to coast conference, but I'm bummed. There you go. Uh, well, you know why not? I mean, so it like the like the old grocery stores, the A and P, Atlantic and Pacific, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, it. Um, there is another way out of this besides, you know, abandoning ship and heading for you know it's all every man for himself kind of thing. Aren't we supposed to have each other's backs? At least that was the agreement they made. So, and I remember when Louisville signed it all, but you know, it's a and I forget the, the legal term that they use, but the basic idea of it is that these ACC members will stick together uh, for I think it's till twenty thirty five. Yes, the uh, the grant grant of rights isn't wasn't that the Correct. Uh, yes. term? Yeah, yes. they had that, and then and, are, and then the ACC, Pac twelve, and Big Ten had this a lot supposed alliance. All right, that didn't right. last long, did it? No, and that was a handshake agreement. At least I'll give it that. Although. Isn't that your word? Isn't that supposed to mean no, something? No, not, not today it doesn't. Um, no. All, yeah, all I know so. is, you know, had, had I known that uh, I was volunteering to, to fill in today and this was coming down the pike yesterday, I guess that's pretty good timing. But I know we'll, we'll have so much time to discuss. It, it is a sports talk show host uh, pot of gold is what it is. But Yes, everywhere I've gone. Everywhere right. I've gone, that's all people are talking about. And right. the implications and what it means to their school and their league and all of that. And are they in or are they out and all those things. And, you know, based only on what – I'm a big past performances guy. You know, I'm a horse guy. Right. And uh, there are people who 
have different systems in horse racing, but I'm purely a numbers past performances guy. And mm-hmm. recent past performances do not flatter anybody right now in college athletics. And to see UCLA and USC seek out the Big Ten, uh, knowing that they were about to cut a new deal, a TV deal, for apparently billions of dollars, right. um, and knowing how that would change things, providing the number two television market in the United States, not to mention the history of UCLA basketball and, and to some degree USC football, although mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to come back after some challenge times. I mean, it was just too much for the Big Ten to pass up. So suddenly this, this hand-shaped deal that we'll all stick together and look out for each other, which came as a result of the SEC getting Texas and Oklahoma, I mean, this is just, it, you know, it's right. hard not to have a bad taste in your mouth about the whole thing, especially if you're sitting there like in the Big 12 or like, you know, Kansas, like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> we, you know, uh, and there are others, Oklahoma State. I mean, there they was a law that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State had to stay together, and Oklahoma walks away from it, and then the legislators say, that's okay. Right. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Well, let, let's leave that sour taste for a minute, switch gears. Uh, you were here over this past weekend and Monday night for the NSMA Awards. I just wanted to get your, your take on it. You've been when we were in uh, in Salisbury back in the uh, last decade. Um, just your thoughts on being here for three days with with others who do what, what you do. Well, you know, the whole premise of it is a noble and honorable thing. I mean, I, I did not know about the organization until you took the job because we've been friends forever. And frankly, I wish I'd known about it a lot earlier. Uh, and it's faced some financial challenges and still has some over the years, and I've encouraged all my peers that this is the one support group that exists for us. I mean, we're, I mean, while many of us do have, you know, I hate to say normal jobs, but have a normal business model on a job where we get benefits and all that, a lot of us are independent contractors. And even if we're not, I mean, the there aren't many people out there to lean on a shoulder, other unless you have a friend or two in the business. And most markets are enormously competitive. Ours happens to be one where we're all very close friends and golf buddies. So, we do have that support group a lot, uh, but most markets are not that way. And so I guess the, the takeaway, the walk away, uh, having been there twice now, is how important it is, uh, how important its survival is. Uh, as you know, I've talked about I'm going to try to help some more soon financially, and I wish more people felt that way beyond simply joining or whatever or giving lip service to it. Um, to see the who's who of people that have won awards there before uh, and the who's who of people who were there just the other night, over three nights actually, and how they are so genuinely, as a body of work, nice and supportive and understanding what you do and respecting whether you're from the 220th market or, you know, national sportscaster of the year, uh, how everyone really connected. I mean, Charles Barkley was awesome and Ernie Johnson was incredible. I did not know, I don't know if I told you the story or not, but uh, I found out because of what he was doing in that individual seminar he gave, that Ernie moved to sports in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. I got the backstory that the, his godfather in that was a guy named Raven. Well, we have a common godfather. Right. I deducted that that guy had to be Raven Matthews, mm-hmm. who was news director at WSB at the time, and became the general manager, actually the, the corporate news director for Pulitzer, as you know, and eventually our uh, general manager. And Raven discovered me. Uh, and so when I walked up to receive the award from Ernie, I'm like, you and I have a common friend and mentor. And he gave me a quizzical look, and I said, mm-hmm. Raven Matthews. And his jaw dropped. And this is all very quick. And he's like, he changed my life. Mm-hmm. I'm like, he changed mine too. It's, he's a good guy, and you know, I'm thrilled that for you. And 
the smile on his face, that knowing nod and all that was exceptionally cool. So um, that kind of thing, I mean, you can't put a price on it. You can't put a value on it. it uh, to know we have that kind of connection, uh, to see the kind of debrief you did uh, with Jan Kennedy. Um, Who will be on in just kind, a few minutes. Yes. The, the kind of affection that everyone showed for one another, um, I mean, really across a lot of, you know, price points and salaries and fame. And he goes mainly checked at the door, which, you know, as you know, in our racket doesn't always happen. Uh, it was exceptionally cool. And I, I drove, you know, whatever it was, seven hours back to Louisville on a Tuesday. And much of that was rolling around in my head. What mm -hmm. a special time it was to mingle, to, to help younger kids, which, you know, is very close to my heart. Um, probably reviewed about a dozen kids, uh, and not just kids' kids, but also, you know, maybe late 20s even, their videos and trying to help them get the next step because I've always been a big believer, as you are, in giving back and legacy and leaving the back door open for the next guy or the next lady uh, to walk through it. So even more reason why it was so uh, connected to Jane Kennedy's story because I vividly remember her. I was graduating Tennessee in 79 when she was, you know, banging down those doors. Yeah. And to see what she did – and to see what so many since have done in terms of moving our business along is exceptionally cool. Well, Fred, you and I could talk for hours, but I will let you go. You have a show to do, right? Or two or three today? Rumor has it. Yes. There you yes, go. Sir. Well, back, I appreciate the saddle and all that. Yes. There we go. I appreciate your time. Always good to chat and catch up, and we will uh, continue to stay in touch. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend and a great fourth. My privilege, my friend. Same to you, sir. All right. Take care. Fred Cowgill, Kentucky Sportscaster of the Year. And anchor, sports anchor at WLKY-TV in Louisville. We'll be back with Jane Kennedy after we take a pause for this. One, two, three. You're on the air. Wake up with Jeffrey Griffin and Triad today. Weekday mornings at 7. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin sitting in for Josh Graham, who continues his honeymoon in Hearts Unknown. You know, we just finished our 62nd NSMA Awards weekend with a banquet Monday night. On Sunday night, we gave out the Rune Arledge Award to Innovation to my next guest. I was a, I guess, a college student when she made her debut on the NFL Today as the first woman of color on a network television sports show. She is the great Jane Kennedy, my newest, bestest friend. Jane, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you to my newest best friend as well. <laughs> Boy, did everyone have a great time not only meeting you while you were here this past weekend, but uh, hearing your speech on Sunday night uh, that was just so inspiring. And I want to give our listeners a chance to, to know the story if they don't firsthand. So if you would... And I'll take you back, kind of. You and I did our little chat after you made your speech, and I, I asked you, growing, you grew up in Ohio, and were Miss Ohio as a a teenager, and, and just tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about growing up in Ohio and, and how that Miss Ohio maybe kind of steered your life in the in the direction it ended up going. Um, okay, I can I can do that, but actually, you know, people think that the perception is, you know, the Miss Ohio did springboard uh, my career, but absolutely did not. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, I, I grew up in Ohio in a family of six children, five girls, and then one boy. Um, and 
my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she was one that, you know, we did everything. Uh, basically, our world was in our home. Um, the backyard was our playing field. We had huge meadows all around our house, and so then all the neighbors would come over and hang out. But, you know, sports was very much a part of our life growing up. Um, I participated in the the um, standing broad jump, which I don't even think anybody mm. does anymore. <laughs> but, um, you know, that it was just some – I was a tomboy, you know, mm-hmm. and this was something that I loved. I loved football. I would watch with my dad. Um, I remember the very first Super Bowls. And I was never, ever dreaming of – I would watch the pageants, but I was never dreaming of ever being in one. But my mom sent my photo in <laughs> when yeah. I was a senior in high school. And they said, oh, yeah, 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 she would be a great contestant. So, you know, it was fun. I did it. And um, turned out I didn't even expect to win. As a matter of fact, um, I was in the pageant with my older sister. The mom had sent both of our photos in. And I was competing as Miss Cleveland. Um, from I was in the Cleveland area. And she was Miss Wycliffe, which is the city that we lived in. And um, so I had already picked out who I thought was going to win. And when they announced her as the first runner-up, I literally turned around on stage, and I'm looking at all the girls, and I said, well, who are they going to pick? <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. My sister, my sister nudged me. She said, Jay, they're calling your name. They're calling <laughs> your name. <laughs> but um, it was definitely not on my agenda. But it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. Um, and I missed my senior prom because when everybody else was shopping for prom dresses, I was trying to find an evening gown for the national pageant in Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. And um, the night of my senior prom was the very night that I was on stage um, in Miami. And um, they had told me, you know, well, you can't say Wycliffe, Ohio, because, you know, in the parade the opening and you say, hi, my name is Jane Harrison, which was my maiden name. And I'm from and you say where you're from. And during rehearsals, I said Wycliffe, Ohio, and they said, nobody's going to know where that is. You have to say <laughs> Cleveland. So I said, okay, and that's when I discovered the miracle of live television. Uh-huh. So when I got on stage, and it was my turn. I said, Jane Harrison from Wycliffe, Ohio. <laughs> and the prom committee had put up um, TV monitors all around the prom, and so everybody was watching, and the, they just went wild. <laughs> but, I mean, that was that was basically it. You know, they didn't expect the black girl to win. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing to do. All the prizes that had been promised were reneged the next day. Um, I didn't do very many personal appearance um, as Miss Ohio. And, um, you know, it was just a thing. And one day I did it and then I was off to doing something else. But I was a model for the May Company team board. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing commercials in the Cleveland area. And that was actually what launched me into the entertainment industry um, because my very first commercial I did when I was in 10th grade. And um, um, my ex-husband had, uh, he was a disc jockey and he had just come back um, to the Cleveland area and he was producing a television show called Out of Sight with Leon and Mike. And so he called me and he said, how would you like to be on this show? And I said, of course, you know, and Debbie Allen. Um, was also on the show Mm -hmm. and um, this goes way back you know (laughs) so nobody knew where our careers were going to go but here we are trying to build something together and we ended up um, immediately after we got married uh, we moved to Los Angeles and just tried our luck there Um, 
people would say, you know, um, I heard you were Miss Ohio and didn't do anything, you know, and nobody mm-hmm. cared. And they would actually not be interested at all. So I just took it off my resume. And I, I never used that as a handle to do anything in the entertainment industry. So you did some work on Rowan and Martin's laughing. You you worked for Dean Martin as well. So you were there for a few years. You grew up a fan of Jim Brown and the Cleveland Browns, and it was Jim Brown who actually helped you get into sports, correct? Yes. Um, one of the things that I did um, uh, when I graduated from high school is I was like a team spokesperson for the Cleveland Browns, and that's how I first met um, many of the players there um, before I even came to California. Um, but when flashboard um, what that was 1970. So here we are now in 1978. And I had heard that they were looking for someone um, to replace Phyllis George on the NFL today. And I, you know, I, I just had to go for it because it was something that I loved. I said, I know I can do this job. I know it. And I knew so many of the athletes um, that had, that were living in Los Angeles. And I had been, um, had become best friends with Muhammad Ali so in traveling with him to Manila or the Bahamas or Bermuda or New Orleans, Vegas, wherever there were fights, and um, we would attend, you know, I would meet a lot of different players. And I just knew that this was a job that I could do. But my agent at that time said they're not looking for a black girl and they're want, they want a journalist. And they refused to put me on the list. They had been requested to give them a list of 10 people. Uh, well, CBS turned down all 10, and the next time they asked for another list of 10, they turned those down three times. They turned down the submitted list of 10, and I decided, well, this is not going to happen because they kept refusing to add my name to the list. Mm-hmm. So called Jim Brown, <laughs> and he said, let me get you in touch with Bob Stinner, who was a field producer for CBS Sports at that time. And Bob Stinner then introduced me to George Wallach, who was Bruce Jenner's manager. And George said that the head of talent for CBS would be in Los Angeles the very next week. Would I like to meet with her? And of course I said yes. And uh, her name was Linda Sutter. And uh, she, we met. She thought I'd be great for the show. And if it had not been for her, I would have never gotten the audition. She brought me to New York and um, I was prepping for the show. We didn't have Google. They didn't give you any information on who you'd be interviewing. They wanted you to just be fresh, you know, to just be who you were and work with whatever you had going for you so that nobody, everybody was on even keel. So um, I got there and I saw a a backgammon game in the corner of the room. And so the guy that I was going to interview, I said, hey, do you play backgammon? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started playing. And while all the other girls were scrambling, trying to get their interview questions together, we were busy becoming friends. So by the time we got on the show, on the set with Brent Musburger, it was an easy way for us to communicate. And it just went great. And um, Brent told me two years ago when I ran into him in Las Vegas, he said, Jane, he said, "Um, I just had to do it. I stood up. I said, it's Jane or nobody. Mm-hmm. He said, I was just determined that you were the right person for this spot. He said, because you had a familiarity with the game and you were so great with the players. He said, I just knew that you would be a natural. And, you know, he he insisted that I be the one that they put on the show to replace Phyllis. But they had one problem. 
Um, the president of CBS Sports had agreed with Brent. The producers had agreed with Brent. But they were very concerned about the Southern affiliates and would they pull programming um, because that meant with me on the set, it would be two blacks and one white. Um, Irv Cross was there, Brent Musburger, and me. And um, the way that they decided to fix that problem was Jimmy the Greek was already a part of the show. Now they would put him on the set, on the desk, then it would be two whites and two blacks. And that's how the problem was solved. We are being visited by Jane Kennedy, the great Jane Kennedy, who's actually visiting her <laughs> daughter in Washington, D.C. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. More with Jane after this. This is it. You ready? All right, hold on. All right, do it, do it, do it. All right, listen up. It's The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorinan for the honeymooning Josh Graham, Will Dalton behind the glass, making sure everyone can hear everyone. And we're joined now by the great Jane Kennedy, the 2022 NSMA Rune Arledge Award for Innovation recipient. And Jane, in the five or six minutes we have left, I'd like to touch on a couple of things. You did a couple years on NFL Today with, with that crew. Uh, you, you brought a little... Uh, sizzle reel with you before we introduced you the other night and it was 13 minutes long and i think i counted <laughs> three thousand people that you interviewed in, in your years on tv not just with nfl today but the other shows you did um when you look back on that does does it seem like another time and place it truly does it's interesting that you ask that because it really does you know even being there at the event which was absolutely amazing and it being chalked up is one of the highlights of my life, by the way. Thank you very much, David. You're very welcome. <laughs> but um, it was so surreal, you know, just to be there because it was such a challenge at the time to just be able to work every single day. Um, they were not interested in hiring a black female whatsoever. So there were a lot of hurdles that had to be um, dodged, jumped over. However you did it, you had to be able to keep putting one step in front of the other and go forward. And I just decided I was never going to quit, you know, but I did. I was able to um, go on and do Sports Spectacular, mm -hmm. Greatest Sports Legends, which was amazing because that broadened the scope because now it's not only football, but, you know, doing tennis and skiing and um, track and field and basketball, wrestling, you know, everything, which was amazing for me because I was a sports addict, so I asked, I actually, as a matter of fact, at the Pan Am Games, um, during one of the dives, I was able to actually climb. It was a high dive, and I was actually able to climb up on the, the low boards and watch and take pictures wow. as a diver was going into the water. I mean, where, well, where else would you get that opportunity but in the world of sports? Right. So obviously a pioneer, and, and that word has been attached to you many times. Our pal Leslie Visser, who is here with us as well this weekend, likes to joke that she's been called pioneer so many times that the next time she hears it, she's going to come out in a coonskin cap. Uh, um, but, but pioneer uh, is a big word. It is. And they, yeah. And I have, um, people are telling me that I need to put the word icon when I'm writing my, I'm almost finished writing the book. When I get ready to publish it, they want me to put icon in the title. And I'm not quite comfortable with that yet. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get you more comfortable with it. But I, I did want to ask you about about you know being that trailblazer and 
there are so many more women of color who are on the air today who owe you obviously a great debt of, uh, of gratitude. Um, do you hear from any of these women who are on today? Do they even know who you are? Um, as a matter of fact, um, I ran across on Instagram a piece that Jamil Hill did mm -hmm. that was amazing, um, you know, saying that, you know, the name is not mentioned enough, you know, for the trail that I blazed. Um, so that that was very inspiring when I heard her say that. Um, there's a lady by the name of Marissa Tigney who has a podcast, and she talks about how she used to watch me. And she said, you know, very seldom did you see a person of color holding a microphone talking about sports, yet alone a woman, you know, so, and to hear those words and people who are inspired and then you see them going forward and doing the things that they love, you know, that really, really puts a warm feeling in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I'm just happy that I was able to make a difference. We have about three minutes left in this segment. Uh, you, you briefly mentioned an autobiography you're working on. That and anything else, um, what, what is in your immediate future? I'm also working on a documentary um, um, about my life in sports, um, but I'm also considering the entire um, span of my life. So it would include, you know, Jane Harrison, which is the first part, um, Jane Harrison being growing up, and then Jane Kennedy being in Hollywood, Jane Overton as being a mother of four daughters and what that means to me personally. Um, and my commitment to be able to um, open the doors for so many young women um, that don't know how to get to the ne that next level. Um, we're facing so many issues with women in our country today that I want to be able to make sure that they have the best foot going forward. So anything that I can do to help young women to be able to pursue their dreams like I was able to do mine. And then the last part of the idea would be Plain Jane, which is the name of the, the book, um, where you find out who you are. You know, like after you've given to your family, to your children, to your career, who are you? You know, so what do you do for yourself? How do you find your authentic identity? And a little bit of a trivia question for those of you who are interested. Jane Kennedy's husband, Bill Overton, was one of the first black players, football players, at Wake Forest back in the mid-60s, right? Absolutely, yes, he was. Well, Jane, it has what? been an... Oh, go ahead. No, I was, what's the question? <laughs> well, I guess I gave it away. <laughs> but it, Jane, it, yes, has been, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. We, Jane and I had talked on the phone one time before she got here on, on late, late on Saturday night. And uh, as, as I said on the, in the intro, she's now one of my newest, bestest friends, um, an amazing woman with amazing accomplishments. And those of, out, those of you out there who, who've just tuned in and maybe heard part of this, you will do yourself a, a good service by getting online and doing a little research and finding out just exactly how much Jane Kennedy has done in her life. And uh, suffice to say, you'll be amazed. Jane, it has Thanks been so a much. great pleasure, and uh, I, look I look forward to next time we meet. Absolutely, <laughs> and it won't be long. <laughs> there you go. And tell your your lovely daughter, Savannah, who we also enjoyed meeting, tell her a hello for us and uh, tell her I might be popping in next time I'm in D.C. Okay, great. And the other ones, I have to mention their names as well. Please I have do. A, 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 my other daughter is Copper Joy, and my baby daughter is Zaire Overton, and um, my other daughter, the one that's older than Savannah, is Cheyenne. Well, thank yep. 
There you go. My, Thank you. My my brood. <laughs> there you go. And and boy have they gotten a great uh, boy have they had a great role model uh, for their lives, and uh, I could definitely see it in Savannah. I, I look forward to meeting the others as well. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. It's a pleasure. Take care. Jane Kennedy Overton. Uh, what a trailblazer and what a woman. Uh, can't tell you how inspirational her speech was after receiving the Rune Arledge Award on Sunday night. My name's Dave Gordon, sitting in for Josh Graham this afternoon along with our pal Will Dalton, despite his Yankee hat, behind the glass. We'll be back with Wes Durham, who had the last Packer and Durham show this morning. Hey, Triad, this is Rich Eisen. Catch me this evening at 6 for the Rich Eisen Show. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. Our next guest, I know we're about to get him on the phone, is Wes Durham. Wes is actually, for, for transparency reasons, Wes is the president of the National Sports Media Association Board of Directors. He's been on the board for a long time, and I'll let you tell the story about the first time he went to Salisbury to see what was then the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers uh, Awards dinner with his dad, the legendary Woody Durham. Uh, but Wes also just finishing up the run on the Packer and Durham show this morning and getting ready to do some play-by-play in the fall. And uh, I believe Wes is on the phone right now. Mr. President, how are you today? <laughs> Long time no talk to. What was it, yesterday? It seems that way, yeah. It was yesterday, in fact, yes. We, uh-huh. had, we had a little post-mortem uh, NSMA Awards weekend uh, Zoom conference. So uh, so the last show today, Packer and Durham, how, how did that go? I, I was I was tuned into some of it on the way into work today, but uh, thanks. didn't hear the whole three hours. How, how was it? Well, it was great. And, you know, everybody uh, here in the last 48 hours has been incredibly kind about what Mark and I tried to do when we started the show for ACC Network, Dave. And, and really, that was kind of the keep the pillars of what we had done with um, with the show on Sirius XM. And a lot of that was see if we could find a way to talk about every school and every show and also highlight sports and the stories within the sport. And, you know, I think when we started down that road on radio, the natural progression to television was going to happen. And when it did, um, you know, I, I, I think the reaction we've gotten the last couple of days is, is that we've been able to accomplish, you know, that goal for sure. Um, you know, we knew when the ACC network was born that a lot of it would be driven by certainly football and men's and women's basketball. And then the layering of the other sports would occur. And I think we, we saw some of that. And then the pandemic, you know, obviously took us down in 20. But when we came back in the fall of 20 and we were able to piece together football and those fall sports that we had become accustomed to to play in those championships in the, in the fall were pushed to the spring. Mm-hmm. I actually think it did something for field hockey. I think it did something for men's and women's lacrosse. I think it, uh, I think it really did a lot for, you know, certainly the soccers and things like that, that were already kind of established. So at the end, you know, for us to be, you know, applauded today in some respects or lauded, if you will, for what we had done covering all sports, you know, I feel like we, we did a pretty good job then in 659 shows. I would concur with that, listening to it almost every day on my way into work. Um, and, you know, I would obviously the plur- 
majority plurality of us are are interested in football, men's basketball, mm-hmm. baseball, women's basketball. Um, but there are an awful lot of kids who work awfully hard at their sports. And and mm-hmm. even if you're not a, you know, if you're a parent of one of those kids, you are interested in that sport. How much more right. of an appreciation for those other sports do you think you and Mark gain from from doing this show and 659 episodes and and talking <laughs> to those um, field hockey players and coaches and tennis yeah, players? Yeah, and sure. I think I think a lot. I think we um, we developed relationships and in some case friendships with some of them. Um, young girl that played soccer at Florida State now started her television career after a year in Europe. Kristen McFarland who. Um, you know, reached out to me when she came back to the U.S. and and was trying to get started in the business and how it would go. Um, I think we've also been treated to exemplary, you know, exemplary success. For instance, like what Kim Llewellyn and Jerry Haas did this year in Winston-Salem with women's and men's golf at Wake Forest, right? Mm -hmm, right. What Dan Brooks has done for years with Duke in women's golf, what Karen Shelton has done. And, And for me, talking to not only those players, but also those coaches was revealing. Um, so yeah, I, there's certainly more respect. I tell you the, the, the person who we've enjoyed talking to probably as much as anybody in that role or in that light would be Charlotte North who played field high or mm-hmm. lacrosse at Boston college. Right. Two time winner of the Tawarton is the, is the best female player in the country. And, you know, Charlotte was just spectacular when she was on the field, and she was incredibly genuine when we talked to her. Same with Aaron Matson at Carolina. And I'd say the Hydleys, the Hydley brothers who wrestled for NC State, you know, became favorites of ours. So there's all sorts of different, you know, portals that you go into when you do something like that. And it was fun. It was a good time. And, you know, I again, I, I said this on the show today, we can't thank the administrators, the coaches, the staffs, and, and certainly the student-athletes at each institution for, for being as cooperative and supportive as they've been really since we launched on the 19th of August in 2019. For those who don't know, Wes Durham, our guest right now, Wes is not only a voice of football and basketball on ACC Network, or FACE, I guess, uh, Packer and Durham show, also the radio voice of the Atlanta Falcons. He's one of a, mm-hmm. I guess a handful of, of radio guys, or actually both, who do a college game on Saturday, usually, <laughs> and then a, an NFL yeah. game on Sunday, usually. Do you have any good stories from trying to get from one to the other? Oh, gee. <laughs> um, yeah, outside of sitting uh, in a car on a Seattle street, and the policeman told me I couldn't get out of the car because it would break a city ordinance if I did to walk to the press box. No, uh-huh. I, I have no other good stories. <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, knock on wood, the Falcons play West Coast Week 2, West Coast Week 3 this year, and I'll have to make that Saturday-Sunday jump as it stands right now and try and get to those games. And and to be honest with you, it's been something where I, you know, I feel very fortunate, A, incredibly supportive from the Falcon organization from the day that I joined them in 2004 and I was still doing Georgia Tech. Mr. Blank and Rich McKay have just been sensational to me mm-hmm. um, and incredibly supportive of the work I do. And then, you know, Georgia Tech and then to work with Fox and Raycom for, six years, as you know, um, you know, doing ACC packages for them. They were incredibly supportive from Rob Reichley at Raycom to, you know, Todd Mahinnett and all the people at, uh, 
at Fox and uh, it was, it was just really, you know, it was great. And then to come to ESPN and, you know, Brian Yarrow and Steve Ackles coordinate all their college football. And those two guys, I mean, they already have the dates in question, <laughs> you know, that are going to be tricky jumps for me, no matter where I go. We'll take that 11 a.m. So, kickoff, please. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, in some cases, that's exactly what it takes, believe it or not, right. is to have the 11 a.m. game or, you know, something of that ilk. And so that part has been great and the support from those guys. And, and that's what it takes. I mean, if you don't have, you don't have all that together, you're not going to make this happen. So, and, and um, you're, and you're your yeah, own very, traveling very secretary, lucky. right? Huh? You're, you're, you are your own traveling secretary. Yeah. You're the one who's responsible for, you know, planning those routes and the airplane tickets, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I have, um, you know, I, I work with the folks who you have to work with to a degree in the light of planning, but on the whole, um, yeah, I'm, I'm identifying the flights that I have to have. Absolutely. And then once you get there, how does that work? And so, you know, in the last year when the Falcons, because of COVID protocol, we couldn't travel on the team charter. We couldn't travel, stay in the team hotel. We had to find our way into the stadium and out of the stadium um, from a transportation standpoint. That became a that became a major situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and people say, well, you know, tough break, right? Yeah, you still get to go to the games. But, you know, when you're on the ground, in some cases, three hours before kickoff for the first time, in some cases, two hours before kickoff, you got to find a way to make that work. And it gets a little tricky, especially in today's world. And, and with the protocols in different states, you weren't sure what you could do. And so you kind of had to stay abreast of some of that as well. Talking to Wes Durham, the chief cook and bottle washer of all things ACC, as well as the Atlanta <laughs> Falcons. And we will continue our chat with Mr. Durham after we take a little break for this. All right, I think all the levels are set. Showtime. Now, right now, you're on The Drive with Josh Graham. Josh Graham enjoying his honeymoon this week and next, I believe. Dave Corrin sitting in for Josh. Talking with Wes Durham, our pal, who uh, was here over the weekend into Monday night, I guess into Tuesday morning with our 62nd NSMA Awards and National Convention was also our MC for the big awards banquet on Monday night. Wes, your your impressions of of the weekend and how that went? Well, I hope everybody had a good time. That's number one. The hospitality, I think, was terrific. Um, you know, the the people in the community, especially in Winston Salem, who've who've helped us bring the organization to this community, have been have been really terrific. And I'm looking forward to. Seeing, you know, through the through the work we have of our board and the volunteers we have in the area, what that would look like, you know, as we continue to grow. Um, I think we're just kind of getting started. Every like everybody else, we were, you know, hemmed in because of the uh, because of the pandemic. And you know, you guys did a terrific job of putting that thing together last December when we had to had to cram two of them together, if you will, and then you know to be able to to pull this one off accordingly. And I, I would say too that I think people that aren't quite familiar with NSMA would be surprised what kind of event it is once you do go. Um, and I think you can share this as well as anybody can there locally. It's probably one of the most underrated events in Winston-Salem every year from the standpoint of who's in the room and the people you actually get to interact with. And uh, I thought we were fortunate to have Scott Van Pelt, Jeff Passan, and Ernie Johnson and 
you know, these folks be such welcoming national winners. And then our Hall of Famers were great with Jackie McMullen and Curry Kirkpatrick. And, you know, that's that's just the kind of reward you get for supporting kind of local charity, local event and, and that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, as we move forward to the next event in June of 23, we'll be able to showcase even more Winston-Salem through uh, NSMA membership, but also um, show them terrific hospitality as well. I'm, I'm proud of the event. I'm proud of the event with Salem. Um, and I think it's uh, continuing to grow very nicely. And I, I want to see it continue as well as, as much as I can. Yeah, thank you for the job you did on Monday night as MC, despite uh, Curry Kirkpatrick's 29-minute monologue <laughs> after his acceptance of his uh, Hall of Fame plaque. Uh, we, we kept the train moving pretty well, so thank you for that. You know, I've got sure. about five minutes left with, with Wes because, as you might imagine, he's a very popular guest today with the news yeah. that broke yesterday of the uh, uh, another explosion or implosion as it relates to uh, college mostly football expansion. Just want to get your, your take on that quickly. Uh, you know, Dave, I, I think we'd be, you know, crazy to think that there won't be more. Um, it's going to really depend, though, a lot of these leagues, and, and the, the USC-UCLA situation is unique because they're out of a media rights deal when they make the move to the Big Ten. So mm-hmm. they don't have to pay a get-out-of-jail card type right. fee. Um you know, I've been asked a lot today from across the country. I've gotten a lot of texts in my travel today about the ACC. And I would tell you right now that for any of the 14 fully vested schools in the Atlantic Coast Conference, it would be pretty tricky and, and prohibitively, from a cost side, very costly to try and leave this league. Um, I mean, the media rights deal is pretty airtight, as I understand from talking to legal people who have seen the document. Uh, for me, you know, I, I'm not terribly concerned right now. But then again, I didn't think USC and UCLA would subject themselves to joining the Big Ten. But I understand that the Big Ten rights fee does start with a B mm-hmm. and not an M. Um, so there's that. I would add this. I, you know, the Notre Dame thing, the speculation on Notre Dame is going to continue until Notre Dame says something, one Correct. way or the other. Correct. And the fact that Notre Dame's not talking is of note to me um, mm-hmm. because I think Notre Dame is in a tricky spot here. They clearly would have to, uh, you know, pay an out fee to leave the ACC. I think David Hale has written about that today at ESPN.com, and David's done a really good job of kind of qualifying all this. Nicole Auerbach, our, our friend from our NSMA board, has also done a great job. But all that being said, I think we're, we're in kind of a holding pattern on a lot of college athletics here. And I will point back to the abdication of uh, leadership in the NCAA office that's caused a lot of this, too. Um, now, have conferences made some mistakes? Certainly. But the, the tragedy in this in college athletics is going to be what Mark Emmert has done the last 10 years as president of the NCAA. Because nothing has happened in Indianapolis to progress these, these sports along accordingly. And it has really forced the issue of the schools themselves at the highest level to – fend for themselves moving forward and that's what you're seeing and, and i don't want to be the uh i don't want to be an apologist for mark emmert because very few people are let's be honest but is it possible that you know the, the ncaa is the schools it is not a, an independent organization is it possible that this is what the upper echelon of football playing schools wanted in the long run oh i don't think there's any question 
that the football, the college football product in this country is a raging beast. <laughs> I mean, it is second only to the National Football League in terms of per capita percentage viewership. And it is a television entity unto its own to the point that I would argue that they're making now the television money that only, you know, the NFL makes mm -hmm. in, in some respects. And no, they're never going to make that. Right. But we're really going to, this next college football playoff contract is going to be wild mm -hmm. because they're going to be more than one television partner involved in it. But I, I would say this, I, yes, major college football needs, Keith Dunham wrote an unbelievable book about 20 odd years ago called the 50 yard seduction. Mm-hmm. Keith Donovan's a terrific writer and historian, and he, he has actually written this book. And if you go back and read a book written 20 years ago, you're not going to be surprised to, to be able to piece together all the things that are happening now from a historical standpoint. I, I absolutely think they want it to be this. And, and quite frankly, the reason it is is because it's not tied to the NCAA like the basketball tournament. Today. Right. Correct. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to get anyone upset in Richmond by making you late because I know that's your next uh, stop. But uh, I truly appreciate thanks. your time today and everything you do for the National Sports Media Association. So, Wes, thank you. Uh, and, my uh, pleasure, and and thanks for your friendship too. And you guys have been incredibly supportive of me as uh, as the new board chair, and I'm grateful for that. So, have a great fourth, okay? You as well. Thanks, my man, Wes Durham voice of ACC Network Football, Basketball, and the Atlanta Falcons on radio and the board president of the National Sports Media Association. Let's step aside. Can we do that, Will? Yes, we can. Will is saying, yep, yep, we can do that. We're going to take a break, and joining us next will be a local gentleman. gentleman. His name is Chris Geis. He has been the spearhead towards starting a police athletic league for T-Ball in the inner city in Winston-Salem, and we will get his story when we come back. Places, everyone. Come on, places, please. We're ready. Get your morning off to a great start with Jeffrey Griffin on Triad Today, weekday mornings at 7. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin. Gorin. I'm going through reverse puberty. Easy. There we go. <laughs> Dave Gorin. I'm so excited for our next guest. Uh, sitting in for Josh Graham, who is, if you haven't if you haven't heard, on his honeymoon yeah. in Turks and Caicos. So good for him. Just wanted, before we get to Chris Geis, just wanted to, a uh, couple guests have alluded to the uh, fact that Charles Barkley was at our uh, awards banquet on Monday night in Winston-Salem. And I'll tell you the story of how that happened. Curry Kirkpatrick legendary Sports Illustrated writer who went into our Hall of Fame, at the Final Four in New Orleans asked Charles if he would present him for induction. And Charles said, I'll get back to you. Let me let me check. And so it, it took him a while to get back to Curry. In the meantime, Curry asked Leslie Visser to present him. So she was there. And then asked Bob Costas, who did a little video. So he had three people to present him, and Charles didn't get back to him until about, I guess it was about five weeks ago, and told him he was clear for that night and he would come. And so I said to Curry, well, let me know, does he need a hotel room? Does he need a ride from the airport? Where is he flying into? And then uh, he didn't get back in touch, with, in touch with Charles. So at one point we posted on social media, we, in capital letters, think Charles Barkley is going <laughs> to be at our awards weekend, but we really weren't sure 
Uh, talked to one of the Turner Sports PR guys a couple weeks ago, and he said he had talked to Charles two weeks before, and he said he was coming. So still, we, we weren't completely sure, but I, ha- I was about 90%. And then on s- last Saturday, I was texting back and forth with Leslie Visser, and she said she had been texting back and forth with Charles, and he was coming. So at that point, I was talking to our last guest, Wes, Wes Durham, and Wes said, now, I'm not being funny about this. I'm being serious. Do you think we should get some security for Charles? And I said, you know, I, I think that's a really good idea. So Monday morning I made the call, and we, we had an off-duty policeman there all pretty much all night with Charles from the time he got to the convention center, just, just in case. And I had told uh, one of the other Turner sports people who were there uh, with Charles that we had done that, and he said, you know what? You won't even need the person because Charles is a man of the people. And yes, sure enough, is. Will, you saw it firsthand. Oh, yeah. Every single person who asked for an autograph got one yes, with a did. smile on his face. Of course. Every person who asked for a picture got one yep. with a smile on his face. Not only did he show up at the banquet and do his presenting with Leslie Visser, which was hysterical, mm-hmm. he also came to the after party and stayed till quarter or two in the morning. And nobody, no one who was near him bought their own drink. Uh, yeah, that's what BDOT was telling us and and, and so i was it's funny friday night i was sitting at the hotel bar with our iowa sportscaster of the year keith murphy and his wife jenny and this was before most everybody got to town only a couple people came in friday night and i was saying hey do you remember the story of how when you know charles barkley threw a guy through through a plate glass window and i thought it was in milwaukee that was actually when he broke a guy's nose but that the the plate glass window thing was in orlando and (laughs) <laughs> and he was, ju- I have to say, he was justified on both accounts and was charged but not convicted on either account because mm-hmm. people were bothering him. So anyway, I, I said to Keith Murphy, I said, here is your next sports talk show segment. Who would you like to throw through a plate glass window? So if any of our guests don't show up on the phone, we have a segment to do, Will. And, and maybe that? when Josh gets back, you can suggest that to him. Like I It's, it's your it idea. I'll write it down. So our next guest is someone I would not like to throw through a plate glass window because every other time we have lunch, he buys. Welcome, Chris Geist, to the show. Chris, how are you today? Hi, Dave, uh, and thanks. I would endorse heartily what you said about Charles. I sat next to him at the dinner the other night, and he was the nicest guy in the world. You're right. He was about the last guy that to leave because everyone wanted a picture, and everyone got a picture. Absolutely. Everybody should be like that. So Chris is a longtime friend of mine. He is an attorney in Winston-Salem. And Chris, tell our listeners, if you would, about this T-Ball League that you have spearheaded. Um, thank you, Dave. I, first of all, I really appreciate being invited on uh, to the show and especially being interviewed by a person of your stature around the country. And I hope your listeners realize how important you are in this industry. So, so now I'm buying lunch next time is what you're telling me. The next two or three times, hopefully, <laughs> yes. Uh, that should count for that. Uh, although I bought our friend Jimmy Quandra, a former Deacon football player, lunch today at our favorite uh, restaurant downtown. All right. Um, but I wanted to um, I wanted to go back and and tell you how I got this idea for starting this T-ball league. We had opening day yesterday at Rupert Bell uh, Field, which is in uh, East Winston, off um, about a block off MLK Avenue, ten blocks from Union Station, where Hank Aaron signed his first professional contract back in the 1950s. Um, about eight years ago, I was watching the Little League World Series, and I was captivated by uh, a team from Philadelphia 
where, um, which was led by Monet Davis, the pitcher who became a female, a girl, who became the Sportswoman of the Year for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And um, there was also another team from Chicago, an all-black team, and I thought, just like the Philadelphia team, which was all inner-city kids, I thought it was wonderful because this is America. This is what our kids should be doing in the summertime, playing baseball, like all of us did when we were growing up. And I, I thought, why doesn't Major League Baseball reflect this anymore? We all grow up worshiping our heroes in sports. And when we were kids, all our you know heroes were a mix of America. And you know I thought, we need to do that and get that back so these kids have a love of baseball like we did. And um, so I put that, I clipped this article out of the newspaper and I put it aside on my desk. And, and last year when I finally got around to it, I had some other things I had I'd been doing over the last few years. I said, I want to start this league, and what a what a better could could not have been a better time to do it. If anyone has seen what's been going on in our country uh, the last few years, we need it. We need a shot in the arm. We need to bring people together. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this? So I spent last summer calling around. The first person I called was a guy named Steve Bandura, who was Monet Davis's coach and did this thing in Philadelphia. He um, built this program up there, and, and he was gracious enough to spend time with me talking, emailing, sending me information, and I said, we can do this here. So then I spent uh, a good part of last summer calling around, emailing, talking to people, and I finally got up with Barry Roundtree, who's our retired city police chief. He's the head, and I knew Chief Roundtree, he's the head of the Winston-Salem Police Foundation, which is a, a charity or nonprofit that supports our police department and he said I said this is what I'd like to do and he said this is what we want to do too why don't we get together and you know Chief Roundtree and I spent the next um, few months uh, doing this putting it together pitching it to the board and the board agreed to do it and the board brought me on um, to be a member of the board and I got appointed the unofficial commissioner of the league um, and um, we decided we would run it out of the Anderson uh, Rec Center, which is on Reynolds Park Boulevard, uh, right across the street from the golf course, because they have a program there where kids play basketball and and run track and and do other sports, and they're there all summer, but they're not playing baseball. And we've had 100 kids sign up, and thanks to Brian McCorkle, who runs the Rec Center, is a great, great mentor and great person with the kids, um, we put together 10 teams. Uh, and what we're going to do is we, we decided to start early. We have uh, kids from five to eight years old playing t-ball for one season, and we're going to run that out for three or four years. And then when they're nine, ten years old, we're going to branch them out into pitched baseball, regular baseball, and then keep going until they're 14, 15 years old, and then hopefully keep the younger kids coming in. So these kids will have something to do all summer, and they'll appreciate the game. They'll love the game like like we did when we were growing up. Um, we're going to have police officers be coaches and umpires. We had some out there yesterday. Our uh, police chief uh, was there yesterday supporting us. And um, I can't say enough uh, good things about the support we've received from the city of Winston-Salem, too. Uh, Rupert Bell Ballpark has not had baseball played at it for over 25 years. And I talked to somebody who played there over 25 years ago, Josh Howard, who was an All-American at Wake and uh, an NBA star. And he said he played baseball there, and he would love to see it 
going again. He came out of the Anderson Rec Center as well. So over the winter, um, um, Brian McCorkle of the Rec Center and I went out to, and found this field, and I thought, this is our field of dreams. Uh, this is a diamond in the rough. It's in a little disrepair, but we can fix it up. Um, and we called the mayor, and the, the city got right on it. Uh, William Royston, the Parks and Rec director, put a crew on it, and it was beautiful yesterday. They rebuilt the field, the fencing, the dugouts, the bleachers, the concession stand, the, the, the water fountains, the bathrooms, everything. It was sparkling yesterday. And we put 10 teams out there, and we had baseball. <laughs> it was just a magical day, very, very good day for the city. Talking to Chris Geis, a local attorney who spearheaded this police athletic league in Winston-Salem, starting with T-ball for a few years, and then the hope is to graduate these kids into regular pitch Little League. We're going to step away, take a break. We'll have more with Chris Geis, talk some baseball and some other stuff, as Chris and I do almost weekly at lunch. Stay with us. You're listening to The Drive without Josh Graham. The hottest working man in show business. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of the show. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin in for Josh Graham this afternoon as we head toward the 4th of July weekend. It's 448, which means everyone's been gone from the office for at least an hour and a half, right? Chris Geis, our guest joining us, has started a police athletic league in Winston-Salem for inner-city kids. They debuted last night. Chris, what was opening day li- or opening night like, like last night? Well, we don't have lights at the field, so it was opening day. You know, in the tradition of old, we played under the sunshine, and uh, it was wonderful. It was very hot, though. Um, and some of the kids were not used to being in such heat and exerting themselves athletically, but that's why I think it's going to be such a great thing for them. We had 10 teams, and uh, the kids had a wonderful experience. They were, they're all 5 to 8 years old, so you know their attention span is a little limited, but they have a lot of energy, and they played 30 minutes. We had um, all the teams play, so five games. We finished up about noon. Um, I wanted to thank the Dash because they – they gave us um, uh, all the bunting that was surrounding the field, made it for a beautiful tableau for the July 4th weekend. And uh, Bolt, uh, the mascot, came out, and the kids, of course, love Bolt. Um, but we had, you know, each team had a different color jersey on, and it was like a, a rainbow of Skittles out there. It's yeah. just only, only better tasting. Still there, Chris? Yes, I'm still here. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let's let's move on to um, you know you you and I we have lunch we we solve the world's problems or at least try to. Why do you think um, this idea brought so many facets of, of the city and the community together? Well, I, I think I think because. Uh, I, I hate to be corny, but my favorite movie is Field of Dreams. I think because baseball is America, you know, and people recognize that. Um, it brings people together because of the love of sport, the teamwork, the history, the tradition. Um, and people realize this is a good thing for many reasons. Um, the kids are going to have great role models in police officers, and we had students from Winston-Salem State who are out there as well. Um, they, and these are 
these are under underserved, underprivileged kids, and they 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 see that people care about them uh, from all across the city, and they're going to have good relationships with the police officers, and they're going to know that the police are there to help them, and and they they are going to see that people care about them, and they may be able to you know turn into great athletes. We could have the next Monet Davis here, uh, and we don't even know it yet. So there are so many reasons why this is such a great idea. And, and if people out there want to help and maybe contribute, donate to the organization, how do they do so? Well, um, they can they can contact me uh, or the Winston-Salem Police Foundation. Justin Gomez is our board president, and he's eager, always eager to have uh, help for the police foundation. The police foundation does so many good things for our city and, and the police department uh, all year round. Um, and this is just one facet of it. Eventually, I think we would like to um, do other sports. So the kids are playing sports year-round, but we're going to start with baseball. And what is it about baseball that that is your thing? I mean, you know, we like all sports, but baseball really strikes a chord with you. I think it's because it's the first sport we played as, as kids, and we played it with our fathers. Um, and it's such a beautiful game. It's Done. It's played outside, and I love all sports. I love, you know, I just love everything. But baseball was the first love, and you never get over that first love, I think. Um, and I'm an outdoor person. I love being in the sunshine. I love, you know, the green grass, um, the crack of the bat. I love getting a little dirty. I got a little dirty yesterday. Um, I noticed you were dressed up for this yesterday, too. Well, as I'm the commissioner, and the mayor was there, and the chief of police was there, and, and as I told a friend this morning, the commissioner creates the dress code, and the dress code requires the commissioner wear a tie on opening day. So uh, I, I wanted to make sure that everybody saw that we're taking this seriously. Uh, I might wear some shorts and sneakers for the <laughs> T-shirt for the next few games, though. It was a little hot out there. And what do, what does the schedule look like? What days do they play and what times, if people are interested in going out and seeing it? And they're welcome to. The The ballpark uh, is in, or the field is in the middle of a, of the, of a neighborhood, so people can walk to the neighborhood easily. Uh, there's plenty of parking there. They're going to play every Thursday starting at 9 o'clock, running through about noon for the next few uh, weeks, and our season is going to end around the 1st of August, right before the kids go back to school. So it's about a, a month or so, and how many teams play each of those weeks? Do they all play, or is it yes. is there a schedule? Uh, every team plays every week. Um, we have a full schedule, all 10 teams. Um, we've got 10 teams that um, we've taken professional names from and 10 teams that have more unique local names, including the Pond Giants, which was historically a Sandlot team and a, and a very involved community group in, in East Winston. Uh, we also have the Peacekeepers and the Chiefs and the Camels, although our, our kids will not be smoking camels. <laughs> We're honoring that heritage. Um, so, And we have, this is a, one of the cool names, we have the 44s, which is based on Hank Aaron's number 44. Absolutely. Talking with Chris Geis, local attorney who helped start or spearheaded the start of this Police Athletic League of uh, Inner city kids in Winston Salem playing T-ball this first year. Chris, what do you what do you hope these kids learn? Not only about playing baseball, but learn about themselves. 
Well, I, I think, number one, the, some of the kids, as, as I watched yesterday, are going to learn that they have a lot of athletic ability and they, they can focus that, uh, channel that, and become great athletes or even great baseball players. Um, I think they'll learn that people care about them. I think they'll learn uh, that uh, people, not just their family, people from all across the city, they'll, they'll learn that police officers are here to help them and, and care about their success. Um, they'll learn a great game. They will uh, learn teamwork, which, you know, we all learn in sports. Somebody told me yesterday, I think one of the city officials told me yesterday, that the statistics on, on children who go through recreation centers and play sports um, are so much better for children who don't have that um, focus in the summertime because the, the kids are getting mentorship from adults. They're learning new skills. They're learning how to overcome adversity if they you know, if they they lose a game or they get hurt or they got a they hit a, a you know losing streak or something, they can push through that. So, you know, it's like I said yesterday at the opening day. It's like James Earl Jones said, um, "Build it and you will come." But even more important, baseball is America. You know, mm-hmm. and what's all what what all that was good about America can be good again. And uh, I hope that's what we we do here when we build this program. I, I really feel like we're just getting started. Well, that's great, uh, and kudos for you to you for for you know taking the initiative and starting this and, and putting in the necessary work and making the necessary connections. So we we talk say in a month the the season comes to an end. Um, if we're talking in in the minute we have left, what would you like to have accomplished in this first year? Well, I would like twice as many kids to play to want to play next year. You know. We had 100 kids sign up, and we really didn't even advertise. So next year, we want even more teams. And we want the kids to tell their friends and the kids' parents. And there were a lot of parents out there. It was, it was really beautiful to see all the family members out there because they were excited too. Um, we, want, we want the kids to think, I can't wait till next summer so I can play baseball at that beautiful ballpark again. Well said. Chris, my friend, thank you for joining us this afternoon. I wish you nothing but uh, the best. I I need to get out there and see some baseball and promise you that I will before the season is over. And uh, who's buying lunch next? Um, Well, I think we agreed you're buying the next few lunches, (laughs) but uh, I meant what I said about you. But here's the thing, folks, and this is for Dave and this is for all your listeners. If you want to come out and coach, if you want to umpire, we could use you. Because um, we've got we've got police officers doing it. They're taking time off from their jobs and doing this in their free time. But we could use more help. So come on out and teach these kids something if you can. All right, Chris. Thank you very much. We will see you soon. And when we come back with the next hour, Bob Ryan on his new book, and Tony Syracuse breaks down if he can this college football expansion madness. Check this out. We're on at five. The perfect blend of sports and pop culture happens this evening at six with the Rich Eisen Show. Okay, let's get this show rolling. Now back to the drive with Josh Graham. You may know him. He's a frequent guest on the drive with Josh Graham. His name is Bob Ryan. Long time, forty-four years as a full-time writer and columnist at the Boston Globe. Um, Younger people may know him best as a regular panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn. He fills in on Pardon the Interruption. He is an all-around good guy and sports savant. 
In fact, as an NSMA board member, he was here this past weekend, although his job was to introduce his former Boston Globe colleague Jackie McMullen for the Hall of Fame, which he did uh, return the favor from 11 years ago when Jackie presented Bob for the Hall of Fame. And Bob has a new book out. It is called In Scoring Position. And I will let Bob set the uh, set the plate for that. Um, I believe, Bob, you are vacationing in Maine. Is that correct? I am. I'm a, I'm a, a, a free throw away from the lake, or, or maybe you might say a Steph Curry floater. There you go. So set us up. The you, you told the folks here you signed books at our Sports Book Festival on Sunday, and thanks again for doing that. But set our listeners up who may not know. In scoring position, how did it come about? It The derivation is the fact that since the beginning of the 1977 baseball season, uh, I have accumulated nine Baseball Writers Association scorebooks. Uh, they each encompass, uh, I don't know, 150, or I don't know, it has to be more than that because, I don't know, maybe 200, I'm guessing, games in them. And um, uh, and I, I have kept score. I was a baseball beat man for the Red Sox, that, uh, Boston Globe, starting in 77. And I did that entire season plus postseason. And the next year I was off the beat, another story, not that I was doing wrong, but um, – uh, I still continued to keep score at every game I attended, whether it was for business or pleasure. This includes vacations when I would never leave home without my scorebook because, as we all know, no one you don't know when a baseball game is going to break out. And uh, so I have these 1,400-plus games uh, scored, uh, and, and they include uh, all, all over the country, uh, major league, even minor league games, and even one college game that it would be worth talking about. So... Um, that's the case. That's the derivation. That's what the material is. I have a, a, a friend named Bill Chuck, C-H-U-C-K, and he's a renowned, everybody in baseball knows him. He's a renowned baseball historian and researcher. We were on the phone uh, in April of 20, and in the course of the conversation, he said to me, you know, I think those scorebooks of yours, you could get a book out of that. And I, I scoffed. I said, no, come on. He said, no, no, I think you can. Why don't you run the idea by some people and see what they think? And I did, and I got a positive response. I then went to my agent, Andrew Blauner, and got a positive response. He took it to around, uh, and Triumph Books in Chicago has the book. Now, what the book is, uh, you get at the top of each, there's about 150 games ac- uh, 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 accounted for of those 1,400. And at the top, you get the representation of the scorebook page in question. And then I write, what's all about? Why did I pick this? What, what, what's the deal? What, what oddity or what, what, what uh, historical occurrence or what fascinating thing happened in this game on this page that is worth discussing? And then I write, and then Bill writes uh, and fills in the blanks. He calls it polishing the gem, uh, which is uh, maybe the historical context or things about the person that I talked about that you didn't know or I didn't know or whatever. And together we've collaborated on the book. And um, uh, there's so many examples of the kind of, you know, and I'll sum it up by saying this. I believe firmly that uh, there is more conversational fodder provided by baseball than the other three major team sports put together. You want to throw in soccer, make it four. Uh, It's just the nature of the game, the number of positions, the number of things that can happen in the course of the game, the number of historical things that happen. Uh, I have stuff in there that has uh, uh, one thing of, you know, very great interest if you love baseball. Uh, that has never happened before. I was there. It only happened once. Uh, and we have several things that are kind of like that, but this one is really significant. And, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's fast. If you love baseball, 
this is a niche book. I won't doubt this. You have to really love baseball. But if you do, uh, I think you'll find it a very enjoyable read. And I made the mistake of not grabbing one early at the Sports Book Festival on Sunday because <laughs> for the first time in the history of our Sports Book Festivals, and I want to say we've hosted maybe six of them, your book sold out. I was flat. I was I really, I was flabbergasted. I really was. I was so comp. It was, it was such a gratifying feeling. Yeah, I, uh, people. Uh, so that that was really nice to know. I, I, I certainly was. Uh, I made my day. Now I, I don't know if they're in the book, but uh, I know included in the fourteen hundred plus games that you've scored since nineteen seventy seven are a couple of Winston Salem Dash games. There are indeed, and I, I wanted to get a couple of at least a mi- one minor league thing in. Uh, I don't know. We we hashed around what to do. But we never did. But there were I, I, one of the ones I wanted to do. By the way, I, I covered a game in Columbus, Ohio, in which the winning pitcher, of the game was a complete game in an hour and fifty-five minutes, and I thought that was significant in and of itself. But uh, uh, it's the only sub-two-hour game in there. There's another game in their book that has a two-two-hour on the nose game. Tom Gordon pitched for the Red Sox. Anyway, um, yeah, I have been to the Dash. Of course, you know my firm belief that they are the most misnamed team in America. They should be the hyphen. That's, that's right. Well, you, you, you and I are on the same page on that mm-hmm. one. And, and I want to, I don't know if it was two years ago when you were here or three years ago, you actually saw a play that you had never seen before. Do you remember it? No, go ahead. Tell me. No, I don't. It was an outfielder making a great catch over the fence. Okay. And landed right, on yes. a bullpen rake. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. Now, I'll, I'll get, since I teased people, let's get to the one that I was alluding to. Uh, I covered a game in which a, a man in successive at-bats hit into a triple play and hit a grand slam home run. And that is the only time in the entire history of Major League Baseball that has ever happened. The batter was Scott Hattieberg of the Red Sox. And as a further kicker and the proof that baseball, uh, you can't make this stuff up, uh, Brian Dahlbeck was on base for both. <laughs> How about that? So yeah, he, so that's the kind of stuff we've got in there. In addition to stuff that we're, uh, people would know from history, such as Reggie Jackson's three-home run game in 1977 in the sixth game of the World Series. And, and then my story, and the other thing I, I must add here, is that um, uh, any time I can have a personal anecdote attached to this story, uh, you know, that uh, we, we do. And, and that has one of them, I got the, and how I got Reggie to sign it 26 years later, and uh, uh, stuff like that. So, uh, uh, and I'll just say this, too. It's important to note uh, the, the fascination of baseball. This is one person's experience. If you or any listener had his or her own 1,400-game experience, they could have had 1,400 different games and, and come up with stuff that I don't have because baseball is just endless in the, in the, in the cool stuff that it provides. Absolutely. Uh- Bob Ryan, the book is in scoring position. You know, as a columnist for as many years as he was, Bob has uh, never never been shy on opining, and we're going to get his opinion on this latest news from college athletics. First, let's step aside and take a break, and we'll, we'll chat some uh, college athletics with Bob after we come back. You're listening to The Drive without Josh Graham. Your attention, please. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. My name is Dave Gorin, sitting in for Josh Graham today. And joining us from his vacation in Maine is legendary sports columnist Bob Ryan, who is also a member of our National Sports Media Association Board of Directors and 
Talked about Bob's book in scoring position, which you must run out hastily and get, especially if you're a baseball fan. But, Bob, the news broke yesterday. UCLA and Southern Cal to the Big Ten. Who knew? Well, not me, that's for sure. That certainly was my uh, jolting uh, moment in the morning when I found that out. Uh, what do we say? Um, I, I, I have to preface. Uh, I go back to when I was six years old. My father became an assistant athletic director at Villanova in 1952 and uh, my interest in college sports. Uh, my, I always like to say my two foundation sports as a fan were baseball, major league baseball and college basketball. Mm-hmm. Thanks to, uh, and, and, but football was a part of the deal, of course, but I've always been a basketball guy. But okay. So I followed college sports. I've, I lived in, I've been very passionate about college sports. I've been to 32 Final Fours. Uh, I, I'm pretty knowledgeable uh, about my history with football and basketball and college sports. Uh, I, I've long, I've given up on the idea to think that there's going to be any more quote-unquote logic uh, applied to the, uh, the uh, conduct of college sports. It's so radically altered than the way it was even five years ago, let alone 25 or 30 or 50 when, when I was in school. And it's, it's the idea that we now have a conference that encompasses Rutgers and UCLA uh, and USC. It, it, it's on one thing. It's laughable, naturally. I mean, mm-hmm. it's preposterous. It's, it's idiotic in that sense. But they don't care. It's all about one thing. It's a five-letter word. begins with M, ends with Y. And it's actually about two things. The, the, M, the M-O-N-E-Y and, and, the, and football. It's about football, nothing else. Football, 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 football. And, and the ACC was originally hijacked and, by, by football. And, and the league that was founded on basketball back in the, in the mid-50s uh, and, and had nothing to do with football and, 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 and was going on very nicely without it. And then the Big East came along, was going on very nicely without it, and it's all to the great, great god of football. And, and uh, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm just perplexed and, and angered, disgusted. Uh, uh, it, it's the whole world. You know, throw in the NIL, which you knew was going to create incredible issues, and 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 not good, and none of them good, and and then the transfer portal, uh, and and everything. The whole thing is completely shattered. It's crazy. I, I I'm, I'm I'm very distraught. It's, it's chaos, and that last S is the dollar sign. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild, the wild wild west. Everyone knows it. Uh, I can't. Here's the thing, Dave. I can't now. You know, you you're very involved in the wake and and you you're, you're like I I can't imagine anyone wanting to coach in this atmosphere and and either football or basketball. I can't imagine why you want to be recruiting and and stealing players and and save, saving and, and guarding your own because of the transfer portal and and the madness that you know recruiting was enough of a of a crazy world and now now the whole thing is is absolutely I don't know how anybody would want to even remotely get involved in it right now at all I, I can't imagine and perhaps why we saw Roy Williams leave a year ago Mike Shashevsky and Jay Wright leave Jay Wright this, at this age 60 and vigorous and and, mm-hmm. and and sitting on a, a you know having a nice thing going at Villanova and and giving it all up you know damn right well that that he said I don't need this anymore and and uh, you know and the, the loss of course is to the sport and to the the, the profession but but um, it these this world is absolutely askew. It's crazy. I don't know. There's, and, and, and then, you know, the idea, too, that uh, they, the NCAA, of course, was always reactive, never proactive. And, and, and uh, every, the, the, uh, you had to know something like the NIL was coming. And when it did, they weren't prepared. And now we got to deal where this state has that rule and this state has the other rule. And, 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 and they don't know what to do with it. And, uh, I mean, it's just – now, uh, scheduling? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Who cares? I mean, that's, now, how, what about minor sports? What about non-revenue sports? 
you know, what, 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 what about the, the, the wrestling team? What about the swimming team uh, uh, and, and, and the new conference, uh, the new Big Ten? Uh, it's uh, nobody cares, you know, because it's all about the money that they all. They're all so gaga about the money, and and uh, you know, good luck to them. And, and when it comes to academics, I mean, you went to Boston College, which is a small, high academically minded institution. I cover and have been here in Winston Salem, Wake Forest, which is likewise. I went to Syracuse, which occasionally pretends to be. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you I did that admit a story me. I always tell Dave yes. uh, that about this difference between then and now. Uh, uh, when I was at college, we had a, a wonderful player named Terry Driscoll, mm -hmm. and uh, who wound up being the fourth pick of the 1969 draft uh, and, and uh, was the MVP of the 1969 NIT when the NIT meant something and was a wonderful college player. And he went on to become uh, uh, eventually the athletic director at Women Mary's, just retired, a, a terrific guy. Anyway, a wonderful player. Bob Cousy was the head coach when I, of my four years at Boston College. So one year, Terry, who was a pre-med major, right away we're talking about science fiction today, right? Right. He was, he was a pre-med major, and he had a lab scheduled one year, one of his courses, that conflicted with the original the proposed practice time that Cousy had. So what did Cousy do? He changed the time mm. to accommodate Terry's lab. <laughs> Now, uh, this is in 1965, 6. Um, okay. I mean, how, how in, just irrelevant is that discussion today? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was a student, believe it or not, a good one. And, and you know, he did not become a doctor, but he was a pre-med pre major and a sincere one. And, and uh, eventually he became a professional basketball player and later an athletic administrator. But the point is that the Bob Cousy altered the practice time to accommodate his players' need to go to a lab. You know, you think Nick's doing that? Nick Saban's doing that? You think Dabo's doing that? You think, no. you think uh, uh, Lincoln Wiley's going to do that? You think, uh, well, they don't have to worry about it because it's not going to present themselves to them, to them. But this is where we were there. And by the way, we were pretty good. We were 117 and 37 in my four years. We went to two NCAAs and two NITs, as I said, when that mattered. It wasn't like we were some stiffs. We were good. Right. And, and I think Terry Driscoll belongs in the College Basketball Hall of Fame, by the way. And, and so, anyway, that's the world. That that's, sums up how far we've not come, we've regressed. Well, and, and, you know, coaches have that kind of control. And as you mentioned now with NIL and the transfer portal, you know, let's just say that there is a pre-med major who is playing for your team and you, you don't move that practice for him. He's now all of a sudden going to another school. Yeah, yeah, wait, if, if you can find someone, sure. Oh, yeah, they, they're all fine reasons. It's, it was crazy enough, you know, when, when, they, when they did away with freshman eligibility, I remember having a, 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 a very spirited, ongoing discussion with the late Bill Musselman when he was coaching the Cavaliers. And I got to know him a little bit. He was a character. He was, you know, group, but there was, it was crazy like a Fox kind of guy. Right. And, and I, I made my pitch. I finally persuaded him that the, 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 you know, the, the folly of, 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 of uh, allowing freshmen to play varsity ball and and my pitch was that you had a a, a clear hierarchy you had a clear delineation of 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 of, of, of not power but of of, of, of of rank and 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 you had to earn your way you had to you know defer to the upperclassmen when people everybody went four years and and that first year was good and the reason they did it was academics they could get their academic feet wet and then they could play varsity basketball and of course, you know that's unheard of now, unimaginable to think of that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Then he was Lou Alcindor. You know they would have won the national championship in 1966, not UTF. You know that, right? You know Texas Western. Then they would have won. They would have had four in a row. But uh, anyway, 
they couldn't. But, but the point is, I remember having that discussion, and he finally came around and said, "You know, I think you're right." Well, you know, that was a, that was a moment in and of itself. <laughs> anyway, we anyway. have we have come a long way, and uh, <laughs> I, I think we still have a long way to go to to find out how this all shakes out. And you know, just as we had that flurry of conference realignment and expansion a few years ago, I think we're in for another one. And and you know, my hope well, is that the Boston colleges and Wake Forest of the world don't get left behind. No, I know. Well, they're, they're, well they're now the talk about you know ultimately two super conferences. You know, you know. I mean, you know, Big Twelve's been ravaged already. They're already reeling out of Pac-10s reeling. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, and the ACC is going to be. You know, they're in that same boat compared to the Big Ten and the and, and the SEC. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a whole different world. It's completely different. And you know, I, I've been saying you know for years and years and years uh, with, with, as different things were happening to change the nature of who was playing in the NCAA. You know, about uh, well that. The, the time once they throw the ball up or kick it off, nobody cares where the players came from or how they got there, and that's still true. And that probably will be the prevailing ethic throughout in places where, where college sports reign. You know, to, how they got here, they don't care. If you're suiting up for us and you're good, we love you, and, and we don't care. You know, anything else. And that's uh, that. I think that's that's the. They know they're going to. They can rely on that mentality with the, with those diehard enclaves. You know, mm-hmm. the Tuscaloosas and the Lexington, Kentuckys, and the and the. Lawrence, Kansas, and and the Clemson, South Carolinas, where where college sports reign, and that's the world you know they're they're addressing. So, but before we go, yes, I must take this advantage, Mr. Mr. Gorin, to thank you on behalf of the membership uh, of the uh, NSMA for another wonderful weekend put on. I know what the st- and and to do it in this with a no turnaround time after doing two in seven months was remarkable. I'm going to tell you the word of mouth. We all had a wonderful time, and you should know that. And it was a great event and uh, uh, over the weekend, and, and Winston-Salem should be proud to have you. Well, I certainly appreciate I'm going to be like Scott Van Pelt was during his speech on Monday night. I'm just going to be mature and say thank you very much. Um, thank you for all you do for both NSMA and sports fans everywhere. He is at Globe Bob Ryan on Twitter. The book is in scoring position. And if you ever want to have a conversation about sports, Bob Ryan is your go-to guy <laughs> on vacation in Maine. Not that you need these two words of advice from me, but here they are. Lobster, blueberries. Enjoy the rest <laughs> hey. of your vacation. All right. I hear you. Thanks, Bob. Take care. One, two, three. You're on the air. Wake up with Jeffrey Griffin and Triad today. Weekday mornings at 7. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin in for the honeymooning Josh Graham today on the drive, uh, making our way to the six o'clock hour. Our next guest, he is the college football guru on lastwordonsports.com and a fairly new triad resident having moved here from where else? L.A., Tony Syracuse. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Dave. I'm great. Thanks for having me. So were you surprised when uh, this bomb was dropped yesterday in our laps that uh, UCLA and, and, by the way, are you a UCLA alum? No, I'm not. I, I covered UCLA uh, for our publication last college football for the last five years. And, you know, so I've been in bed with the Pac-12 and UCLA in particular. And, yeah, look, it was a random day in the summer, you know, before media day start to kick in next month and, and I was out running and all of a sudden my phone started blowing up with people if it's true and, 
George Tony, Tony, Fox, before twelve commissioner. Let me. Can I, I? I apologize for interrupting. We're having trouble with your signal. We're going to try to hang it and call back and see if we can get a better signal. We'll, we'll get you in one sec. All right. All right. So, Will, work your magic. Say your your magic words. Abracadabra. Make the phone line come in clearly, and we'll call Tony back and get him back on here. Uh, Tony, uh, as you may have heard, covered UCLA and the Pac-12 and has, has moved here. So he knows his stuff in regards to the Pac-12 and probably the Pac-10 and Pac-8 before that. So we're going to try to get him back here and get a good signal and hear from him. Uh, have about 15 minutes or so left in the show. So we're going to get a quality 15 minutes from from Tony if you were a Baseball fan, couple games going on. Blue Jays leading Tampa Bay and the Cubs leading the Red Sox. They're in the middle of both those games. And now Will tells me Tony is back on the line. Tony, can you hear us okay? Hey, I can hear you guys great. Oh, now you sound clear as a bell. So if you don't mind just rehashing okay. what you what you told, because I apologize, but our, our lines were crossed there and didn't quite hear everything you had to say. But you covered UCLA yeah, no and the Pac-12. I did, yeah. I've covered the Pac-12 for the last five years and UCLA as well. And so, yeah, I, I was stunned yesterday. I was just out running errands because, you know, this time of year, you usually get a quiet week or two in the college football world before the conference media days start up in July. And so I'm just, you know, out. I'm doing what I usually do in Charlotte, which is get lost since I've only lived here a few months. And um, my phone started blowing up with people asking if the story was true. And then I saw the story, and I, I was blown away. And one of the things I said earlier you may have missed is the other person who was blown away was Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov. I he bet. He didn't find out until yesterday morning. He found out, he found out when the media started calling him for a reaction. And, um, you know, he even put it in their statement, you know, uh, yesterday or last night that they were surprised and disappointed. And again, this, this caught them off guard. One of the interesting things to think about is it was a year ago that the ACC, the Big Ten, right. and the Pac-12 formed this three-conference alliance. And I don't think at the time Klyovkov could have imagined that, you know, Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren was going to come pillage the Pac-12 for some teams. And, and at some point we will learn the how it happened or how it came to be, but... Uh, I have mm -hmm. to imagine there are some uh, bruised feelings uh, among the members of the alliance. Quote, unquote, yeah, alliance. I think I, <laughs> right, yeah, so much for the alliance, right? It really didn't last very long. I mean, if you, if you look at George Klyovkov was actually named Pac-12 commissioner a year ago today. Uh, you know, been ha happy anniversary, right. George. Uh, <laughs> you know? So, I, yeah, there's got to be a lot of fallout from this because, one, I don't think anybody thinks that this is over with regards to the Pac-12. Um, you can't lose. Can UCLA and USC be replaced on the football field? Of course. Can the conference replace the number two media market in the country? Yeah, not so easily, no. right? I mean, you've got Seattle, you've got the Bay Area, with with Oregon, you've got a large chunk of the Portland market, but that's not the same thing. And it's happening at a time when the conference really goes into its next network TV negotiations in about six months. 
And this obviously plummets the value of the conference when you lose the Los Angeles media market. And so all the rest of the schools have to be sitting there looking at what kind of haircut are they going to take on the next deal. The current deal already isn't very good. Right. The next deal is now going to be even less without the L.A. media market. So I, I think it's not inconceivable that Oregon, Washington, and the two Bay Area schools, Cal and Stanford, mm-hmm. are looking at their options right now. Or how about the Arizona teams? I mean, they, they could be just left in the desert. Yeah, I, they, they, look, if, if, the, if Oregon and Washington go – you really start to look at the at the dissolving of the Pac-12 conference right. with everybody else, and and I don't know where Oregon or Washington are going to go. I'm not necessarily suggesting to go to the Big Ten. I know the Big Ten reportedly said today they're kind of in a holding pattern right now, uh, waiting to see what Notre Dame's going to do. That's fine. This isn't really about how many schools the Big Ten or anyone else adds in terms of numbers. It's about the media deals, right? Because that's that's what everybody is living off of right now. And and you know and who knows how streaming is and streaming rights will factor into Correct. these next deals mm-hmm. down the road. Um, you look at the Pac-12, and you talked about Washington, Oregon, which are are the, if you will, state schools in their state. Uh, I, I think maybe mm-hmm. Arizona, Arizona State's a little closer because Washington State, Oregon mm-hmm. State. Let's face it. You know, from from the East Coast pers- perspective, are afterthoughts. Um, Stanford, they are from the West Coast perspective, right, also. Right, and you know, Stanford, uh, a high academic, probably the highest academic uh, standing school in the league, and Cal isn't very far behind as a, as the state school in in the state of California. Um, you know, will they form a partnership? End up forming a partnership with the Big Twelve, and then. You know, then we'll have that that big West Virginia Oregon State rivalry to go along with UCLA <laughs> Rutgers, right? Yeah, look, it's possible, and I think again, everyone's got to look at their options. Really, right now, if you're the Pac-12, and, and about an hour ago, George Klyovkov or his office released a statement saying the ten remaining schools have approved the idea of looking at expansion. That's fine, but really, who's out there that you could expand with? I mean, I guess theoretically, you could get SMU. And Houston, if you can get Houston to back out of their deal with the Big 12, um, and at least that way you have the Dallas and the Houston markets. But, again, the entire move is about money. Uh, You look at what the Big 10 did last year, and they handed out $680 million mostly from TV revenue to their members. The the Pac-12 schools got $344 million. So, you know, UCLA did it because of money. Both sure. schools did it because of money. They can talk. They can talk about all the like-minded schools in the conference and partnerships and yada yada yada. It's about money, right? And and, and, and the big UCLA. Go ahead. I was going to say UCLA right now has a budget deficit in the athletic department of a little over a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know the West Coast schools got hit hard because of COVID and playing in empty stadiums. They only played six, seven games that year, so there was reduced TV money. UCLA has bought out a basketball coach and a football coach in the last five years. There are all these things. And UCLA is also a school. I, I think this is different than so many other places we're used to talking about. There is a definitive line between the administration and the athletic department. Mm-hmm. 
Gene Block, the, the chancellor of the school, I don't think I saw him at more than two or three events total the entire time I covered UCLA, but he will not help bail out the athletic department. When Cal went into debt, the administration said, we'll cover it off for you. Gene Block's answer for the athletic department and athletic director Martin Jarman is to give them low-interest loans to, to help hmm. get out of trouble. That's, Good luck. that's absurd. So now you're looking... Yeah, you're looking at the Big Ten money, and it's a no-brainer for right. us you're going to take it. All right, hold that thought. We have to take our last break. We'll be back with Tony Syracuse talking UCLA, Southern Cal to the Big Ten, and we'll follow up with what it might mean to the ACC. You're listening to The Drive. Without Josh Graham, I'm Dave Gordon. We'll be back in a flash. Let's get the show going. It's The Drive with Josh Graham. Dave Gorin sitting in for the honeymooning Josh Graham on the drive. Joined by Tony Syracusa from lastwordonsports.com. He is one of their college football experts and moved to Charlotte in the last year after covering UCLA. How apropos. I, when I was lining up guests <laughs> at the last minute today, I said, that's a guy I need. Tony, you're, all, you're also uh, you've also been up at Wake and covered the Deeks uh, a yep. bit now that you're here. Yep. Uh, what are your impressions mm-hmm. of small market ACC football compared to those biggins on the uh, West Coast? Well, obviously, it's dramatically different, and and the expectations of UCLA needing to fill an eighty thousand seat stadium versus you know what what. Wake has to do uh, completely different, of course. But look, I mean, Wake is coming off a, a historic season, um, and with the eleven and three, and winning the division and the bowl win, and so obviously the expectations are are much higher. And I like what the coaching staff is putting out there because you know they've kind of been, you know, they've been like, that was last year. You can't live in the past. What are you doing now to get ready? I know all, all during spring camp, we talked about mindset. You have to be in the right mindset. And look, I realize there's a lot of coach speak that goes on with this, but you know, they replacing, they replaced most of the defensive coaching staff. And so it took some time to get up to speed. I know early on in camp, the offense was kind of slowing things down a little bit in order to let the defense kind of get its feet underneath them and, and learn the new schemes. And so by the end, I think you could see the improvement. Obviously, there was a lot of shifting in the offensive line because, well, one, obviously you can't replace Zach Tom with the snap of the finger. That doesn't happen. But also with some off-season surgeries and need to heal, you saw a lot of second, third string guys getting a lot of snaps, which is going to help your depth once the season starts. The offense, I don't think there's any question. The offense, there's plenty there to work with this season. The defense, still a little bit of a question mark. The defensive backs were a little bit of hit and miss, especially on the long ball. So Coach Adams has got his work cut out for him, you know, during during the summer and going into fall camp. Well, it should be fun because certainly that offense can put points on the board. So if the defense yeah. can yeah. can improve a little bit, um, you know, a couple points better than last year's. And last year, as you said, was 11-3. and three, Then I think there's a lot to be mm-hmm. uh, looking forward to. You, you know what? If you're a fan and you like football and you like the ball moving, you're, st- you're still going to have a fun season. 
Um, you, you talked oh, absolutely, and there's a lot of upside there. Yeah. Um, you you talked before the break about UCLA's athletic department having this huge deficit and how they, it's almost mm-hmm. like they're forced to chase the money. Uh, reminds me a lot of Maryland, which was and and now this is mm-hmm. you know, how, however many years ago they were fifty plus million in the red, and that's really why they went to the Big Ten. Um, mm-hmm. If these things are are necessary, or the schools or the athletic departments feel they are necessary. Uh, is it fair of us to criticize them for for making the moves? Um, is it fair to criticize? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, look, I get it. I'm I'm old school. I don't want to sound like the guy, you know, yelling at everyone to get off my lawn and who can't move with the change. But I'm old school. I went to my first college football game in 1972 when I was seven years old and have been enamored with it ever since. But I'm also reminded that, you know, I grew up at a time when we had the Southwest Conference and the Big Eight and the Pac-8, and things change and things evolve, and the game is still there, and the teams are still there, and the fan base is rooting for its teams, whether they're an alum or a booster or whatever the case may be, or just a fan, they're rooting for them regardless of what conference they're in and how much money they took to get to that conference. So while, while the change is so massive and we're nowhere near done, um, and I think ultimately we wind up with two big conferences and that's it, you know, but I'm, that's four or five years down the road. I think the game is still there. And I think come this September, people are going to have their rooting interest regardless of what's going on with all the changes. Well, we have about two minutes left and I, I want to put you on the spot. You are now the commissioner, the czar of college football. What is your next move to make sure we have some kind of semblance of order here? Uh, one of the things I do is start to pull college football away from the rest of college sports. I start to pull it up, not pull away, but pull up because the needs of all the college football powers are different than they are the other sports and the non-revenue sports and even college basketball and women's basketball. I start to, I start to look at having a commissioner just for college football and, and to deal with those particulars. Well, it certainly will be uh, interesting. <laughs> I said I couldn't be filling in on a better day for all the fodder that this uh, <laughs> this True. has produced. And, you know, I love it during the summer when it's, you know, who's going to be next in our conference or are we going to lose somebody from our conference? And, you know, I can do that mm-hmm. because I'm a fan and a sideline reporter and, and observer mm-hmm. uh, and supporter of the media. I'm not so sure I'd feel that way if I am Commissioner Jim Phillips or Commissioner George Klyovkov. Um yeah. You, you know, they, they have to be pulling their hair out if they have any left. Yeah, Jim, Jim Phillips is walking a very thin line right now. He's got a TV deal that is far too long and far too bad for too many of the schools in the conference. And I think you're going to start to see some teams start to look elsewhere, you know, knocking on the door of the SEC and uh, see what their options are. So Jim Phillips is, is next in the under the hotline. And it'll be interesting because allegedly that granting of rights through what twenty thirty five, yeah, lo- locked all those schools in, and and you know they're saying, well, now all these other schools are, you know, it's always more, more, more keeping up with the Joneses and the Ohio States and Correct. the UCLA's and Southern Cal's now. So it'll be interesting to watch, and uh, I do not envy him making however much he makes in his job. 
it's probably not enough right now if you ask him and i i would i would tend to guess you're 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 right on well tony i can't thank you enough for joining us this afternoon i look forward to uh seeing you once uh, the football season cranks up and uh, have yourself a great fourth weekend and have a great summer we'll see you soon great thanks dave you too all right tony syracuse our last guest on the drive with josh graham today I'd like to thank all of our other guests as well bob ryan chris geis west durham jane kennedy overton and fred cowgill my name is Dave Gordon. I appreciate Josh letting me sit in for him on this parade of imposters, as I call it. Will, it's been great working with you. I look forward to doing it again Absolutely. in the not-too-distant future. You got it. And with that, we say have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe.